BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome, everyone. My name is Jack Rico, and you're listening to the first episode of Highly Relevant with Jack Rico. This is the podcast where I interview the people and discuss the moments that are shaping our American and Latino pop culture experience. In this debut episode, I am very fortunate to have on as our first guest, Jose diaz Balart, arguably the highest profile Hispanic journalist we have in our country, to discuss bilingual journalism and what that means for the future of journalism in our industry. I'll also tackle the debacle that was Suicide Squad with my good friend Adam Garcia, who's the author of the Green Llama novel, What Went Wrong? What are the ramifications moving forward with Warner Brothers in DC and our superhero movies nearing their end? All this and a lot more on the Highly Relevant Podcast with yours truly. We begin with our featured guest, Jose diaz Balart. He's an accomplished journalist with a career spanning over 30 years in Spanish and in English. But perhaps his greatest and most unique achievement to me is being the only journalist to serve as news anchor on two national television networks in Spanish and in English on the same day for an entire season. Take a listen. What exactly can the United States do if it wishes to uh, increase and, and have better relations with the Castro regime? El motivo, una falla en el sistema informático de Delta Airlines que obligó a la compañía aérea a retrasar y cancelar cientos de vuelos. That is hard to do. His ability to speak both languages without accents has helped him establish himself as a trailblazer in the journalism industry. Jose, first of all, thanks for being on my debut podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it, man. Hey, man, I can think of no nicer person to spend time with. And uh, congratulations, Jack. You, you're such a, uh, a, uh, a light uh, for many of us. And, and the way that you uh, inform us is, uh, is always so, uh, you know, it has that, that touch of sensitivity that... Um, that I, I so appreciate it. I know so many of us do. Now that we're in the, doing the congratulations, congrats on being named anchor of the Saturday edition of NBC Nightly News. Uh, how did it happen, and what's its personal meaning to you specifically? Well, Zach, it was a very quick decision. It took only 32 years. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, just, uh, just, just a few minutes, 32. right? <laughs> you know, that was quick. Look, let's be honest, 32 years. Uh, as Gardel used to say, no, 20 años no son nada. Uh, 20 years or nothing. Uh, 32 ain't, ain't that much more. Um, 
but but seriously, it's 32 years of a of of uh, uninterrupted work in in television and network television for me, and it's been a, a real interesting um, time for me. And and um, and 32 years later, you know, thanks to this uh, privilege of my lifetime, which is to anchor. Uh, Noticiero Telemundo, which is Telemundo Networks, the opportunity to work within the family of NBC Universal. About two years ago, I was asked to uh, to work on MSNBC, and I did that for you know yeah, over two years. Uh, yeah, uh, just finishing up just just recently, just just a couple of weeks ago. Um, but but two years uh, to be able to to work uh, on MSNBC and uh, and really have a a daily platform uh, in English, as well as that uh, Telemundo Nightly News or Noticiero Telemundo. I think that it, it was so uh, interesting for me to be able to, in the morning, reach an English language audience, and in the evenings, a Spanish language audience, you know, or a national audience on both counts. The next step was, um, you know, I was asked to. Uh, to fill in on on nightly news, um, and since it's pretty much impossible for me to do during the week because I do that during the week in Spanish, they you know after some time, I think it's about about five months of filling in off and on, they honored me by by asking me if I would take over uh, NBC nightly news Saturdays, and so it's really a uh, you know it's 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 like granitos de arena, you know, little grains of sand that one has. Uh, in one's hourglass, right? Right. Um, it's the body of work, ultimately, and, and, that, that led you here, right? Yeah. I remember that the first time I saw you, that you came into my sort of periphery, was on CBS This Morning. <laughs> yeah. I remember watching yeah. you on CBS. Um, it was around that time that Brian Gumbel had left the Today Show. I was getting very familiar with CBS's sort of news properties, and that's when I saw mm-hmm. you. I had no idea... That you spoke Spanish or do you were, that you were Latino, and I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that you just don't have an accent uh, being a Hispanic uh, speaking in English, you know. And it's one that's one of those things that that happens to me, that happens to a lot of people. But at this professional elite level, you don't see that. But I've been a staunch advocate for a while that the future of journalism is bilingual journalists. And you're like the living embodiment of that premise. Now, let me ask you this. Why do you think that the concept hasn't taken off at other news networks such as CNN, ABC, and Fox? That's interesting. I think the reason why we don't see more of that is, quite frankly, first of all, because it isn't easy to be completely fluent in two languages. And one thing is to be bilingual. The other thing is to be bicultural. Right. I know you uh, get it, but I, it's, it's not something that, Unless you do speak two languages, it's easy to to define in the sense that, well, what's the difference between biculturalism and bilingualism? Well, bilingualism, you can speak two languages, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you can express yourself freely and do so. And eloquently. Uh, you know, and eloquently and do so, you know, in an improvisational form uh, in two languages. I think that bilingualism is you can you can speak two languages. It doesn't necessarily mean you speak them perfectly or that you speak them without an accent uh biculturalism is that for example and i know you probably do too jack but we uh think in two languages we speak in two languages we dream in two languages we um we pray in two languages even many times uh because it's it's just your mind is 
completely uh, at ease with the language, be it Spanish or English or two, two languages, right. and that you're not even thinking that you're translating. In other words, when you stop translating from one language to another in your own mind, that's when you're bicultural. Bilingualism is, okay, uh, I, I want to see the green cat jump. And then you say, okay, I want to see the green cat jump in Spanish. That's quiero ver al gato verde saltar. But if the concept of a green cat jumping is a concept that you think of in either languages, that's biculturalism. Right. And there's not a lot of that, Jack. And there's not a lot of that uh, on television where you cannot, there are no, there's no room for mistakes. And, and, and the, the bigger the, the audience, the, the more that the magnifying glass is placed on all of us. And so, you know, I, I think that there aren't that many truly bicultural folks uh, on television right now. And the ones that are haven't been given the shot to me that I was, that I've been given. That's right. Um, you yes. know, and sort of, and I'm going to work on that. <laughs> and you know, one of the things that I also have noticed uh, watching you on MSNBC is that you actually do use Spanish words here and there. And I've always wondered how do you decide how much Spanish to use on MSNBC, and have you ever been criticized for it? with viewers or internally, because I know it's happened to me at Univision when I was doing Spanish language here in New York, I would squeeze in a couple of words in English here and there. And my news director would reprimand the reprimand as soon as I got off air. Uh, how does it work with you? How, how much Liberty do you have just for it to be on you or is it deliberate? This is a secret between just us, uh, us right now. <laughs> your friends listening to you. And, and uh, uh, I don't really care about that. And I'll tell you why, because, I don't see my role as being uh, one where I have to uh, be concerned about people feeling uncomfortable about what is part of the fabric of America. And so when you see that there are 55, 56 million Latinos in the United States, and by the way, as you know, the vast majority born in the United States, the Latino population in the United States is not a foreign-born population. And, uh, and, you know, every month in the United States, 53,000 U.S.-born Latinos turn 18 years of age. And, and the reality is that the overwhelming majority of, the, of our population in the United States lives in a household where someone in that household speaks Spanish. They may not speak Spanish, but their abuelitas do, their grandparents do, or their parents do. And so the fact is that for millions and millions of Americans in this country, of Americans, Spanish is the language they hear in their world. And so that being a real part of America, uh, I reflect that. And on MSNBC, I've been very fortunate because, well, I have to be honest with you, NBC uh, News and its properties are really, really uh, forward thinking. And uh, they celebrate diversity in all of its manifestations. And so I can give you an example. The first day I was on MSNBC, which was uh, uh, two years ago, July, the first episode, first news broadcast live I had on MSNBC that one hour, it was during the height of the 2014 crisis of the unaccompanied minors crossing the border. Right. And we had been hearing so much about the numbers of 
kids crossing the border and the repercussions that that would have and the, and the numbers of the undocumented that were uh, uh, coming over the border and all of that. And on that first episode, you may remember, instead of talking about the numbers, I actually brought a young lady. Yeah, I remember that. Across the border. Her name is Maria, and she's Honduran, and she had just crossed over. And she didn't speak English because she had just crossed over. And so instead of having an expert or someone like me or someone like you talking about their plight and their reality, I thought there's enough broadcasts out there to do that. Let's bring in someone who is directly affected by it. And so the fact that she didn't speak the language doesn't mean that her voice is not important. And as a matter of fact, it's a voice that needs to be heard in this national conversation. And so she was on and she spoke and I did a simultaneous translation, her sitting with me on the news set. On the first day, uh, I told the folks, just lower her mic down, raise mine, and I'm going to speak over her. And we had a six or seven minute conversation about why she had decided to do what she did. But by the way, that's and really tough to do, especially when you're live. That's true. That's true. I, I think that way, though. I, I really do. And so it's something that I've been doing for years in the sense that in Telemundo, which, you know, another, another secret just between us friends, <laughs> the, the audience, the Spanish-speaking audience is much more used to listening to English being spoken on their air. And right, but not and vice versa. Simultaneous. Not vice versa. So I did that for seven or eight minutes in the, in the inaugural broadcast. And that had never been done on TV. No, TV, not that I remember. And then subsequently I did about three more opportunities like that. You know, another thing that I really like what you do in the show is that you bring in uh, Latino and Hispanic contributors that usually are never quite given the shot on news networks like yourself, like Adrián Carrasquillo. Uh, changing gears really quick, social media has really integrated itself in the lives of journalists today, but I feel like it's still the wild, wild west out there. It hasn't fully shown its potential yet. I'm curious to know what you think is the role of social media right now in journalism, and how are you using it in your bilingual position right now? That's a great question, Jack, and I thank you for this intelligent conversation. It's so refreshing and rewarding to be able to have this. Uh, and very quickly, before we talk about social media, if I could, you know, those voices, the Adrián Carraquillo and, and, and the Latino rebels and, and the uh, Alan Gomez of USA Today, all those voices that are Latinos that have been on the different platforms that I have on MSNBC and even on NBC Nightly News, um, they've been on to talk some about immigration, but mostly to talk about the economy and Zika and the war in Syria and uh, terrorism in Europe and the economy and unemployment. So those voices of names like Carraquillo and Gomez and, uh, uh, and uh, Gutierrez, they've been on to talk some immigration, but mostly about subjects that Latinos care about and that can be experts on and aren't immigration. And I right. think that's also part of our responsibility to break that stereotypical mold of, oh, immigration, bring on a Latino. No. Oh, stock market. Bring on probably the top stock market experts 
who happened to be Latino. Exactly. Or exactly. I don't know Not why that was such a. Around. I don't know why that was such a foreign idea for so long until you kind of came along and said, "No, we're doing this." That and this is. Still, it's still foreign. It's still foreign in many places. It really is. It's still foreign when you look at uh, coverage. Uh, sometimes in some places, uh, both print, uh, radio, and, and even in, in television, uh, when it's um, inner-city violence issues, uh, sometimes they go to African-Americans more than they do to others. And when they talk about immigration, sometimes you'll see uh, more Latinos represented there than, than you'll see in other subject matters. And I think that's something that we have a responsibility to change, because whereas, yes, some of us have more sensitivity, knowledge, and concern and studies about issues like immigration if we're Latino. Or, but, it, but, but we're also, you know, the most successful stockbrokers are African-American and Latino as well. And, and the most right. uh, successful doctors and neurosurgeons are African-American and Latino and women. And, and the most successful, uh, you know, uh, mayors and members of Congress are Latino, African-American women. Uh, and, and so that's where I think we have a responsibility to to, to say, to use our positions, uh, not as activists, but rather as people who know and knowledge and say, hey, I know a stockbroker who happens to be African-American. He's top of this field. Bring him in. Um, and that's where the, the social media thing plays in, to answer your question. You know, I follow, for example, a lot of the news uh, organizations, but not just, you know, the AP or, or NBC News, but I also, uh, you know, follow El País de España or, or El Universal de México or, you know, the L.A. Times, or, uh, you know, and, and I also have some, some uh, colleagues that are in the Middle East, for example, that cover the Middle East. Severian is one of them, uh, uh, an incredible reporter that covers the Middle East. She's Spanish. And so I, I, I have friends and sources and colleagues that I follow around the world, and I are, I'm constantly monitoring what they uh, have on there. But but the danger of social media, Jack, is that uh, if you see something that looks interesting and enticing and you retweet it, it can really cause long-term damage. You have to have three sources for anything you say with authority is a news information, is a news bit. Right. So if you need three sources when you're writing a story for a written press or for NBC Nightly News or, or for Telemundo, if you need three sources to confirm your story, you need three sources to confirm a tweet. <laughs> Which actually brings me to my next question. Journalism and media as a whole has really been questioned more than any other time in, in, in my modern lifetime. And I'm interested in knowing what do you think is the biggest problem plaguing journalism right now? Oh, boy. There are so many. Uh, I think that, that um, you know, we sometimes in the media are perceived to not be objective. And, and there, it's a, probably a valid criticism of many uh, in the media. And uh, I think that we, we have, as, as journalists, I think the responsibility to be balanced. Now, no human being is objective, uh, but the more you study and the more you prepare, the more you should be aware that it is your responsibility not to put your opinion in, in the stories. And so I think that the things that plague us are the desire by some to want to be an activist shrouded under the cover of journalism, and that I think taints all of us. Things have changed. I think journalism, it's much more difficult 
to cover stories like Paris in November of last year uh, and, and San Bernardino and Orlando and Nice. But you know what stays the same, Jack? I think what stays the same is that good journalism is good journalism regardless of the language, and it's good journalism regardless of who's doing it. If it's done with authority, with uh, ethics. respect for the craft and ethics. And ethics. And right. that, that, that hasn't changed. Uh, before I let you go, Spotlight, arguably one of the best journalism films ever made. Uh, again, arguably, because a lot of people really like All the President's Men. Just won the best picture at the Oscars earlier this year. What are some of your favorite journalism films that somehow influenced you? Some of my favorites are Good Night and Good Luck, The Insider, yeah. Al Pacino and Russell Crowe, Network, obviously. What are some of your favorites yeah. that influenced you? Well, I'll tell you, uh, for the last 12 years, when I've been blessed to have uh, a daughter that's 12 and one who is coming up on nine, uh, my favorite movies have tended to be movies that have characters that fly in the uh, <laughs> Frozen songs. Uh, but but I'll tell you, if we're going back to, to, to just history, I think that All the President's Men, for me, was one of those uh, uh, books that were you know, put into a, a movie that really changed my way of seeing professions, right? Like, like journalism. I think that all the president's men, I also think that there's a documentary, uh, by Almendros called, um, uh, Nadie Escuchaba. No one listened. I have not and heard about, about that one. What's that about? Uh, it's about political prisoners in Cuba, uh, and how no one listens is a documentary that moved me the and you know what now i'm losing the name of it but do you remember that east german movie about the spy oh the lives uh, of others yes the lives of others i thought that was a well, one of the best films ever made of the modern era yeah yes and it's related to us in a very real sense even though it may not be about journalism but it is about how control and how uh freedom is such an important part of our lives and, and without freedom there without freedom of the press there is no freedom and with that said thank you so much jose for being on the podcast you can catch jose the hardest working man in media right now on the telemundo <laughs> news uh, network uh as well as msnbc every single morning uh along with nbc nightly news on saturdays and enfoque on sundays on telemundo thanks jose Jack, thank you. It's been a privilege to speak with you. I look forward to seeing you soon. Hey, when you get a minute, visit our showbizcafe.com archives and take a look at my interview with comedian Sasha Baron Cohen, where he explains to me how he learned his very well-spoken Spanish. Sasha, how much Spanish do you know? You know, uh, a couple of little bits. Adios, Campos de Soria, donde las rocas sueñan y cierro de alto llano y montes de teniza. Up next, a segment I like to call Jacked In, where we plug ourselves in to recap the most highly relevant pop culture news that happened this week. Oceans 8, that's right, Clooney's Oceans 11 is getting another film treatment and it'll be an all-female sequel much like the Ghostbusters. The new cast will include Kate Blanchett, Helena Bonham Carter, Rihanna, Anne Hathaway, Mindy Kaling, all joining Sandra Bullock. Production begins this October. 
Moving on over to television, here we go again. CBS is defending their very white fall TV lineup with critics screaming, CBS so white on social media. Six new programs starring six white male actors were cast for this fall. CBS Entertainment President Glenn Geller said, There are 16 new series regulars. 11 of them are diverse. Moving on over to music. Hey, do you remember this song? People fall in love in mysterious ways. It's a tune called Thinking Out Loud from Brit crooner Ed Sheeran, who won the Grammy Award for Song of the Year earlier this year. Well, he's being sued for allegedly copying elements of Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. Gay's music is so influential that I'm sure subconsciously every songwriter has riffed at some point some part of his music, but Sheeran is up against the giant here. Let's see how he comes out of this. And now to tech, so I'm checking my Instagram this week and I see a new feature called Stories. Did you guys try this? Well, I'm not exaggerating here. They literally ripped off Snapchat. It's so similar that I got turned off by it and I still haven't been able to actually use it. Instagram CEO Kevin Seistrom bluntly confessed to TechCrunch in an interview that, quote, this isn't about who invented something. This is about a format and how you take it to a network and put your own spin on it, end quote. Wow, that's all I have to say. Let me know if you guys are liking it or not. And we'll wrap up with sports. And I know it's not a sports show, but it's part of the pop culture. We're all watching the Olympics, and the Olympics started this week. It comes at a time where some major shifts in viewer consumption has happened. USA is leading the pack so far with 10 gold medals, with two of them or three of them coming from Michael Phelps as of this podcast. I got to see him live at the 2008 Olympics in Beijing win his record-breaking eighth medal. And I got to tell you, I still think he should play Prince Namor, the Submariner for Marvel. Oh, and there's also that A-Rod retirement story. It's real. Friday, August 12th will be his last game in a Yankee uniform. No word on whether he'll join a new team, but he's been asked to stay on as an advisor. He might just say adios and join Fox Sports as a baseball analyst. I actually really think he's good. It's probably the the first bad day he's had in weeks because he's not playing and he's not hitting (laughs) home runs. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you, everyone keeps talking about Daniel Murphy being red hot. Yes, he is hot. But gentlemen, he is a different hitter. My next guest is Adam Garcia. He is the author of The Green Llama, which is a novel that he's been working on for quite some time. He's also a producer at MSNBC and a really good friend of mine. Him and I uh, worked together at VH1 at Big Morning Buzz with Nick Lachey. He did all my segments and some of the more creative stuff we did on that show. Uh, that I still think uh, if you were to put that anywhere else, Adam Garcia was the creator of those really exciting moments. He's here with me to talk today a little bit about Suicide Squad because this is such a controversial film. I'm not exactly sure. It might actually be more controversial than Batman versus Superman. He's here with us today. Adam, thank you for being on the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Tell me a little bit about how you got started in uh, this whole comic genre with uh, The Green Llama. Um, Well, I kind of grew up on comics. My dad uh, raised me as a really young, uh, from a young child on just Golden Age comics, comic books. He would bring me home, uh, you know, Spider-Man stories. He would put me to sleep telling me Superman stories. 
Uh, so when I was a young boy, one of the things he would do is he would always show me these old, goofy, golden age comic books. <laughs> and I remember watching the uh, Star Wars uh, Phantom Menace, and there's Padme. And uh, my dad brought out the Green Llama comic. He's like, look, Omani Padme whom, like in the movie. <laughs> so that, that stuck with me. And I uh, was very lucky, and I was able to meet the right people at the right time at uh, the New York Comic Con. And I just through sheer force of will and luck, I was able to... Uh, be the licensed author behind the character. Uh, he's the world's first Buddhist superhero created by Kendall Foster Crossan. From the 1940s, 1940s right? 1940s. He was originally created in 1940. Uh, he's sort of like a second Rand B-list character. He's, um, when he was written, he was very much this, you know, mysticism, very much Doctor Strange because back then, Tibet was this uh, undiscovered country and Buddhism is this mystical idea. Uh, now, if you say the Green Llama, people think that like, oh, like, a, you know, the animal that spits. Um, <laughs> it, it sounds like a very goofy concept, uh, but it shares a lot of similarities to Doctor Strange. Um, so I wrote a short story uh, called uh, Green Llama, Horror and Clay, which was uh, about a golem uh, that's used to try to fight the Nazis and prevent the Holocaust because I'm half Jewish. And I think that's always I always try to imbue uh, Judaism into my stories. And it got really well received. So I wrote a sequel, uh, Green Llama Unbound. Which I have, by the way, you signed do, you, by you. Thank you so much. No, thank you for for uh, for for you know taking it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, since then, uh, with Moonstone, my publisher, I've been uh, writing a series of them. I have uh, a new book that's out, Green Llama Crimson Circle, which is the sequel, and a few other novellas and short stories um, that kind of show the whole breadth of his life. And currently, I'm working on. A Sherlock Holmes Green Llama crossover novel. Wow. Yeah, we didn't. That uh, sounds like two entities that probably don't belong together in the same universe, yet they, you're making it happen. I'm making it happen. My my publisher asked me, you know, can you do this? Can you make a story with uh, Sherlock Holmes? And I thought, that's a terrible idea. Um, but then I thought about and it. And then there you are, like with a little lamplight writing it. <laughs> Literally, like it, it, I found the motif to sort of bridge them together, and it's a very much a. Uh, uh, it's an older Sherlock Holmes at the end of his uh, at the end of his career with a young Green Llama at the beginning of his career. So there's a lot of really interesting themes that I'm playing with. Let's talk a little bit about Suicide Squad, man. You had a chance to see yeah, it. Yeah, I saw it. And I just got a text from you saying, "Oh my God, what a mess!" An absolute mess. Yeah, uh, Adam, what went wrong? In a sense, I think it was two very different films that were smushed together. Uh, based on what I understand, uh, David a uh, David Ayer had a script that he wrote, directed a very dark R-rated uh, film about villains, uh, which sounds pretty interesting. Um, and then the studio saw the success of Guardians of the Galaxy, of these sort of ne'er-do-wells come together, and it's very funny with pop music. And they the first trailer came out, which is very funny. Uh, it highlighted comedy, a, a much more lighter tone. And they said, well, people are responding to that. We need to add that, those scenes in. And from what I've heard is that there were two different cuts of the film. There was the original cut that David Ayers won, and then there was the recut with the new, probably the new scenes that were filmed. Uh, they tested them, and they tried to smoosh them together. And it created a very disjointed, um, uneven um, mess of a film. You know, there's a lot of... Uh, it's basically – I saw this written somewhere else, and I think it's a very accurate statement. It's basically an act-and-a-half movie. The first act is flashback of who these characters are, of like this really mishmash of like storytelling, and then it, the end happens in this very Ghostbusters-esque style. So if that's the case, then why do the fans love it so much if it's such a disjointed mess? 
it's weird because you know you look at the Marvel films, right? The Marvel films are really good at creating stories that speak very or that are very true to the spirit of the original comics, but are geared towards a wider audience. So for someone like me, um, who grew up on comic books, I can see Captain America. Um, the first Avenger wear his original costume, right? And the original shield. And that just makes me feel all fun inside. But they do it in such a way uh, that feels natural to the storytelling. Uh, a lot of the DC films are assuming that you've already know the characters, that you've met these characters before. Um, and they're trying to drive almost directly to the fans. So Suicide Squad, um, and to a greater degree, I think Batman versus Superman, assumes that the audience knows who these characters are and they are aware of all these iconic scenes, these iconic characters, these iconic moments, and they just hammer them home. What that does is it speaks to the fans who love these properties, but as a uh, as a, 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 a critic or a general audience, they mean nothing. You know, there's a great shot, uh, there's a great illustration of Harley Quinn and Joker. It's one of the most, uh, by Alex Ross. It's a very iconic, it's her leaning up against him, and he's in a bow tie and suit, and you know, and they mimic that in Suicide Squad. It's just kind of there, and it's just there. So, like, look, we know we like your, we like the comics too. Here, it's instead real. of leading up to it in a narrative that exactly. allows you to be able to appreciate it, it just comes out in a random way. Yeah, I mean, you take a look at uh, Civil War. There's a great moment in uh, Captain America: Civil War where Captain America says to Spider Man. Hey kid, you got a lot of heart where you're from. And he says, I'm Queen uh, Queens. And Captain America smiles, Brooklyn. The entire theater erupts. I mean, especially since I saw it in Brooklyn. They love it. They, it. It speaks not only to hometown pride, but also it speaks to, you know, the truth of the character. It's also a shameless pop there, because you know, whoever's from Brooklyn. <laughs> still, but like or Queens, but like, you know, Spider-Man is from Queens and they mm-hmm. stay true to the spirit of that and they put it in a way that feels natural to the story and to the characters. So the box office uh, laughed it in everybody's face. Oh, yeah. Uh, did about $135 million, yeah. uh, making it one of the biggest, if not the biggest movie in August yeah. in movie history. Yeah. So everybody was laughing. Ha ha, Warner Brothers going, hey, take that, uh, yeah. fanboys and critics and everybody else. But now the second week, uh, they're talking about it's about a 60 69% drop-off sort of solidifying that the movie is not that great. It's probably like a good yeah. DVD film yeah. or like a plane movie if you want to go watch it in a plane. Specifically with the DC films, I think they needed they knew that they needed to catch up to Marvel. Um, they knew that they needed to find a way to do it, but they didn't want to mimic the style. Marvel had the the were smart about it. They did individual films and then those individual films all combine to a, to a major story. They have Kevin Feige overseeing everything, so everything sort of flows. But that's just an approach, Adam. That, but th- and that's an approach, and so and not but, every approach has to be exactly the no. same for things to work. And what I what I'm trying to say is that so Mar- uh, DC saw what Marvel did, and they're like, well, we can't do the exact same approach because then we'll be accused of copying, mm-hmm. which is fine. Which cause... is which is fine, right? Um, and they could have gone one of two ways. They, as long as it worked. Yeah. Exactly. They could have either done what Marvel did and said, like, no, screw it. We're just going to do the exact same thing, and we're going to make it work. Or they could have gone the other way, which is start with, like, Justice League and have a magnificent seven meet superheroes story. You already know who these characters are. This is how they met. And then spin off from there. That would have been the exact opposite. Instead, they found, like, this sort of weird middle way of – 
you know, like we're gonna introduce Superman, then we're gonna also introduce, then we're gonna do Batman, Wonder Woman, then we're gonna spin off, and then Suicide Squad, and so it, it, it seems it, chaotic. It's chaotic, and there's no real sense to it. And I think that they're trying so hard to distance themselves from Marvel that they don't really have, they don't have anyone overseeing it. In a uh, until recently, Jeff Johns is now kind of overseeing it. They didn't have a clear vision, and I think that's the biggest thing. Marvel had a clear vision. DC just was like, screw it. Let's just figure out a way as we're going. Um, right. They're improving as they're exactly kinda, as they go. Um, yeah. I wanted to talk to you about Wonder Woman Justice mm. League. Yeah. It just there, there's there's an inherent feeling that I'm starting to feel that I just think that the critics, no matter what DC puts in front of them, mm. they are going to bash it. And I'm very fearful for Wonder Woman, A, because it's the first female superhero yeah. Yeah. that we're ever going to see. And I think that's a huge thing, kind of like Hillary oh, yeah. Clinton becoming president of the oh, United yeah. States. If knock that happens, wood. knock on wood. Yeah. Um, but then we have the Justice League. Yeah. And for everybody who ever loved the Super Friends yeah. when they were growing up, this is the movie that oh, yeah. we always wanted yeah. to see. But if the critics are going to bash it and, you know, we're going to see sort of the same results as Suicide Squad mm. – Man, I gotta tell you, do you think they're gonna fail? I don't know if they're gonna fail. I hope they don't. As a fan of these properties, um, I'm approaching it with a lot of trepidation. I'm not enthused about these films. I'm not looking forward to Justice League. I'm looking forward to Wonder Woman a little bit more just because it feels like the Wonder Woman that I wanna see. The fact that they have a random Golden Age character named Etta Candy in it mm -hmm. sort of says to me, like, okay, you guys are taking this seriously finally. But even with that said, I'm I approach these films with significant trepidation. I, I feel like DC doesn't really, at least the movie division, doesn't really respect or uh, is almost embarrassed by their properties, their comic book properties. They don't want to acknowledge what made these characters work. Superman is a character of hope. You're supposed to look at him and say, like, I can be better because he is better. You look at Batman, and even though he goes on fear, he is a character that is made himself better through tragedy. And instead, they created with Batman versus Superman this deconstruction of making Superman upset to be a superhero to, like, no one stays good forever. I mean, Superman is supposed to be a guy who says, like, it's going to be okay. Right. And with Suicide Squad, because uh, that's, you know, why we're here, it's sort of like, instead of making a movie about villains, right, and just doubling down saying these are villains and they're going to be heroes, they try to make these likable rogues who are going out and doing, like, they're fighting crime, but not really, but they're kind of bastards, but they're not really <laughs> bastards. So it's like, they, they just don't understand. The movie division of DC, it doesn't feel like, from what we've seen, they understand their properties or they're embarrassed by them. Adam, thanks for being on the show, buddy. I My appreciate pleasure, it. man. You can catch uh, and read Adam's book, uh, The Green Llama Unbound, which uh, is the one yep. I have. It's on Amazon. On Amazon. Right? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of books there. Adam, thank you so much. So now that's what happened tonight. If you like highbrow drama and that is your thing, then the best new show that I've seen right now is HBO's The Night Of. It's a slow-burning, emotionally enthralling drama about a young Pakistani man who's arrested for a crime that he might not have committed. We, the audience, teeter on his innocence or his depravity. The production quality is of the highest artistic craftsmanship, and the acting is just simply superb. No scene is wasted, nor will your time experiencing it. It stars John Turturro and Riz Ahmed. Five episodes are already available on HBO On Demand and HBO Go.
That's it for my first episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions on how I can improve the show, please email us at highlyrelevant at showbizcafe.com. That is highlyrelevant at showbizcafe.com. Also, if you like the podcast, please, please, please subscribe, rate it, and leave a review. It really helps the show reach a wider audience. See you next Friday on Highly Relevant. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.